Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Oh, well, that is just my medicine. She says, poisoned. Who could have poisoned it? I promised Wendy to take it, and I will as soon as I have sharpened my day. Tink, who sees its red, remembers the red in the pirate's eye. Nobly swallows the draft as Peter's hand is reaching for it. Why, Tink, you have drunk my medicine. Ouch! It was poison. Ouch! You drank it to save my life. just heard were scenes from the sci-fi classic E.T. and the mother, played by Dee Wallace, of the young boy who discovers a stranded alien lurking about. But Wallace, in her career spanning hundreds of movies, hasn't only played kindly mothers, counting horror and comedy and everything in between. And a recognized scream queen, she's been seen over the decades in Ellery Queen, Starsky and Hutch, Lou Grant, Halloween, The Twilight Zone, The Stepford Wives, and most recently, the occult horror feature, The Nest. And Wallace is our guest to talk about her enormous range of portrayals and much more, including how she predicts those pandemic years will change the way movies are made and why. Also, later in the show, a look at The Great Postal Heist, a deeply personal cinematic voyage through the battleground that is the U.S. Postal Service by the son of a postal worker and union activist delving into the dark side and a workplace so stressful as simply toxic. But first, some scenes from The Stepford Wives with Wallace as Nettie the Maid back then in 1972 as a serene Connecticut suburban town suspects the submissive housewives there may be robots. Then Dee Wallace. In the town of Stepford, the men are getting exactly what they always dreamed of, perfect wives. And the dream is becoming a nightmare for the Stepford wives. A very modern suspense story from the author of Rosemary's Baby. The Stepford wives about what men can do behind closed doors. Uh, they were telling me about the men's association. Right now, it's strictly men only. Not to mention that creepy men's association. We moved here about two months ago, and Ed joins this men's association. Anything that gets him out of the house nights is fine with me. I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. You came to the right town. I want to please him now. I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. It took me so long to get the upstairs floor to shine. Charmaine's changed, Carol Van Zandt's changed, and so have all those other women's club members. I'm getting the hell out of Stepford. Bobby, it's gotten to you now. I just want to look like a woman. And you're not going to leave Stepford either, are you? Leave Stepford? Charmaine changed, Carol Van Zandt changed. She's changed! And stop telling me I'm crazy! You see somebody, you get some help, you, you see a psychiatrist. I think... The men in the association are behind it. And my time is coming. Good morning, it's Dee. Hi, and welcome. Hello, Prairie. How are you today? Okay. And sorry if I woke you. Oh, honey, I've been up since 7, so I'm all gussied up and ready to go. Okay. All right. Now, your first film was The Stepford Wives and where you played Nettie the Maid. How did you feel about that groundbreaking movie when it came out, when it came to the portrayal of women on screen? Well, I think it was pretty right on. 
<laughs> frankly. I think women, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, women have always been secondary citizens for years and years and centuries and ad infinitum. Um, even now, in my industry, they still are paying men more than women for the same lead roles in the same movies. So um, I think it's changing, and I think uh, definitely we're making headway around that now. But at the time that The Stefford Wives was made was just beginning to be the women's movement. Now, you're quite the Renaissance woman when it comes to the variety of characters you've portrayed, from comedy to the supernatural and horror. So why The Nest, and why this horror movie? Well, one, I really liked the script. I thought it was well-written, and when I talked to the producer, I really liked her. I liked the character. I thought there were a lot of colors um, that I could play, and that's always what I look like look for in any part that I do is is it interesting do I understand her do I get her right away and is there a lot of different colors I can bring to it so in a nutshell that's that's why I started getting involved and why such a variety of characters as your creative choices well because no actor well, I don't think an actor really wants to be pigeonholed. Um, you know, we we want to use all of us. It's like why why play rock and bombs and uh, any any and every kind of music on a violin. You know, it's the same thing. We want to express everything that's that's in us, and that's. That's really where the ride for an actor comes from, is being able to access all those emotional levels. So I've played killers. I've played so many kinds of victims. I've played heroes, you know, and those all exemplify a part of who I am. And please talk about getting inside the head of your character, Marissa, in The Nest, and the challenges of that, because... She's got quite a number of different and elusive personalities at the same time. Um, you know, I have a very interesting technique. Um, it's based loosely on the Meisner method, but it was taught to me by my mentor, Charles Conrad. And basically what it is is you get your energy very, very, very high. And you throw all your attention off of yourself. And what that does is that allows you to bypass your mental mind and sort of, for want of a better word, channel the character. And that's kind of what I do. I don't break a lot of things down mentally. I don't break things into beats and things like that. But I stand back and allow the character to take me over so in every scene that I'm playing I am in that moment with that character and she's telling me what to do now I see that you've also been known as the scream queen what are your thoughts about that I'm fine with that I'm I'm fine with that in the horror world I am a scream queen in the sitcom world I'm not You know, in the film world, I go back and forth between so many different kinds of parts that they haven't cubbyholed me there too much. Um, But I'm I'm fine with that. You know, um, doing horror films takes a lot of um, emotional work, a lot of energy, um, a lot of focus. So, you know, if they want to pin that crown on me, I'm happy to wear it. You also once said that you consider your film E.T. to be your Generations the Wizard of Oz. Please elaborate. 
Well, there are very few films that teach the truth, that reach our hearts, and that last for centuries. And those two films certainly do. Um, You know, E.T. takes people to places um, and understandings and reminds them of so many universal truths about love and friendship being the most powerful forces on Earth. And those are messages we will never, ever get tired of hearing. Peter Pan taught us the same thing. The Wizard of Oz taught us. You know, we've been hearing it forever, that we have the power and love and joy are the biggest creative tools we have. And you once said, I'm the girl next door who learned how to make life work the hard way. I lived it victim to victory. What can you say about that? Well, good question. Uh, I started out, my family was very poor. Um, My father was a severe alcoholic. My mom worked, you know, at least one job, sometimes two. I was kind of raised by my grandma, uh, although my mother was very hands-on. So there was a lot of early victimization in my childhood. And, you know, I, I think everybody can say that. We've all experienced abandonment and death and hardship, and that's part of the human experience. But what we do with it and whether we keep telling those limiting stories is what's going to take us into victory or keep us as victims. And of the many personas you've lived through in your productions, which one would you say was the most challenging for you? Oh, Cujo, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was relentless. It was beyond difficult physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, But I'm incredibly proud of my work in that film. And are you working on anything next? Well, yes. Um, I I actually have three other films coming out. Um, And I'm just going in. I I did this wonderful children's series um, on Amazon called Just Add Magic. And... um, one of the girls is going off on her producing debut, and I'm going in next week to help her out and do this wonderful part that she wrote for me. And there, there's um, two or three other films that we're in negotiations about. So things are starting to pick up, not as quickly as I would like them to, but... Um, you know, after COVID, the, the studios are t- still trying to figure out how to make everything work because they can't demand people get vaccinated, which is beyond me. I don't understand why this country cannot come to an agreement on that. Um, you know, so we're still kind of walking that in-between line out here of, is it safe, and what protocols do you have to enforce? And, you know, it, it takes a lot of a, a shoot, like a television shoot, can have over, well over a 1,000 people working on sets and around the sets and building scenery and all that stuff. And to coordinate all those different aspects of what we have to worry about right now it's pretty amazing what they've what they have to go through and i wanted to ask you related to that what are your thoughts about films and their themes and stories headed into the future as influenced by this pandemic um hopefully we're going to see a lot of films not about doomsday but about hope and resurrection of the human spirit and a lot of comedies and 
you know, we have to get our mojo back, and we're not going to get our mojo back by focusing on doomsday scenarios, I think. And any last word on the nest? Yes, I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with this film. I think the performances are wonderful. Uh, I love the direction. Uh, I loved the experience of being there and working on the film. And, you know, you can look at it as a straight horror film, and it works great. And you can also look at it as a psychological statement about how our, um, if we're not on guard of our fears, they take us over and they eat us up. And um, the, the best thing you can do again is take yourself back to joy and love. Okay, thank you, Dee Wallace, for calling into our show. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. And The Nest is out now in release online. And next up on Arts Express, J.R.R. Tolkien, the late, iconic British writer, poet, and scholar, attained global stature as the author of the fantasy excursions, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. But what is little known about Tolkien is that in 1952, he decided for the first time to read from his own work on a tape recorder. And The Hobbit and its fictional universe was actually once banned by the Christian right in this country, which included a book burning amid charges of promoting witchcraft and satanic themes. And in our Arts Express radio drama corner, here is Tolkien with that excerpted recording he taped himself from The Hobbit. Deep down here by the dark water lived old Gollum. I don't know where he came from, nor who or what he was. He was Gollum, as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes. He had a boat, and he rode about quite quietly on the lake, for lake it was, wide and deep and deadly cold. He paddled it with large feet dangling over the side, but never a ripple did he make, not he. He was looking out of his pale, lamp-like eyes for blind fish, which he grabbed with his long fingers as quick as thinking. He liked meat, too. Goblin, he thought, good, when he could get it. But he took care they never found him out. He just throttled them from behind if ever they came down alone anywhere near the edge of the water while he was prowling about. They very seldom did, for they had a feeling that something unpleasant was lurking down there down at the very roots of the mountain. They had come on the lake when they were tunneling down long ago, and they found they could go no further. So there their road ended in that direction. There was no reason to go that way, unless the great goblin sent them. Sometimes he took a fancy for fish from the lake, and sometimes neither goblin nor fish came back. Actually, Gollum lived on a slimy island of rock in the middle of the lake. He was watching Bilbo now from the distance with his pale eyes like telescopes. Bilbo could not see him, but he was wondering a lot about Bilbo, for he could see that he was no goblin at all. Gollum got into his boat and shot off from the island while Bilbo was sitting on the brink, altogether flummoxed and at the end of his way in his wits. Suddenly up came Gollum and whispered and hissed, Blasses and splashes, my precious! I guess it's a choice feast. At least a tasty morsel it'll make us call. And when he said call, he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That is how he got his name, though he always called himself My Precious. The hobbit jumped nearly out of his skin when the hiss came in his ears, and he suddenly saw the pale eyes sticking out at him. Who are you? he said, thrusting his dagger in front of him. What is he, my precious? whispered Gollum who always spoke to himself, from never having anyone else to speak to. That is what he had come to find out, for he was not really very hungry at the moment, only curious. Otherwise, he would have grabbed first and whispered afterwards. I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I've lost the dwarves, and I've lost the wizard, and I don't know where I am. I don't want to know if only I can get away. What's he got in his hands is, said Gollum, looking at the sword, which he did not quite like. 
A sword, a blade which came out of Gondolin. Said Gollum, and became quite polite. Perhaps she sits here and chats with it a bit, see, my precious. It likes riddles, perhaps, does it? Does it? He was anxious to appear friendly, at any rate for the moment, until he found out more about the sword and the hobbit, whether he was quite alone, really, whether he was good to eat, and whether Gollum was really hungry. Riddles were all he could think of. Asking them, sometimes guessing them, had been the only game he'd ever played with other funny creatures sitting in their holes in the long, long ago before the goblins came, and he was cut off from his friends far under the mountains. Very well, said Bilbo, who was anxious to agree, until he found out more about the creature, whether he was quite alone, whether he was fierce or hungry, and whether he was a friend of the goblins. You ask first, he said because he had not had time to think of a riddle. So Gollum hissed, What has roots as nobody sees? He's taller than trees. Up, up it goes, and yet never grows. Easy, said Bill, the mountain, I suppose. Does it guess easy? It must have a competition with us, my precious. If precious asks, it doesn't answer. Eats it, my precious. If it asks us, we doesn't answer. And we does what he wants, eh? He shows it the way out? Yes. All right, said Bilbo. Not daring to disagree and nearly bursting his brain to think of riddles that could save him from being eaten. There are thirty white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. That was all he could think of to ask. The idea of eating was rather on his mind. It was rather an old one, too. And Gollum knew the answer as well as you do. Chestnuts, chestnuts, he hissed. Teeth, teeth, my precious, but we is only six. Then he asked his second. Voiceless, it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. Half a moment, cried Bilbo, who was still thinking uncomfortably about eating. Fortunately, he had once heard something rather like this before, and getting his wits back, he thought of the answer. Wind, wind, of course, he said, and he was so pleased that he made one up on the spot. This will puzzle the nasty little underground creature, he thought. An eye in a blue face saw an eye in a green face. That eye is like to this eye, said the first eye, but in a low place, not in a high place. said Gollum. He had been underground a long, long time and was forgetting this sort of thing. But just as Bilbo was getting impatient, Gollum brought up memories of ages and ages and ages before when he had lived with his grandmother in a hole in a bank by a river. My precious, he said, sun on the daisies, it means it does. But these ordinary above-ground, everyday sort of riddles were tiring for him. Also, they reminded him of days when he had been less lonely and sneaky and nasty, and that put him out of temper. What is more, they made him hungry. So this time he tried something a bit more difficult and more unpleasant. It cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies behind stars and under hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, kills laughter. Unfortunately for Gollum, Bilbo had heard that sort of thing before, and the answer was all round him anyway. Dark, he said, without even scratching his head or putting on his thinking cap. A box without hinges, key or lid, yet golden treasure inside his head, he asked, to gain time, until he could think of a really hard one. This he thought a dreadfully easy chestnut, though he had not asked it in the usual words, but it proved a nasty poser for Gollum. He hissed to himself, and still he did not answer. He whispered and spluttered. After some while, Bilbo became impatient. Well, what is it, he said. The answer's not a kettle boiling over, as you seem to think from the noise you're making. Give us a chance. Let it give us a chance, my precious. <laughs> well, said Bilbo, after giving him a long chance. What is it? But suddenly Gollum remembered thieving from nests long ago and sitting under the river, teaching his grandmother, teaching his grandmother to suck eggs as he is, eggs as it is. 
Then he asked, Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, never drinking, all in mail, never clinking. He also, in his turn, thought this was a dreadfully easy one because he was always thinking of the answer. But he could not remember anything better at the moment. He was so flustered by the egg question. All the same, it was a pose of a poor Bilbo who never had anything to do with the water if he could help it. I imagine you know the answer, of course, or can guess it as easy as winking, since you are sitting comfortably at home and have not the danger of being eaten to disturb your thinking. Bilbo sat and cleared his throat once or twice, <clears throat> but no answer came. After a while, Gollum began to hiss with pleasure to himself. Is it nice, my precious? Is it juicy? Is it scrumptiously crunchable? He began to peer at Bilbo out of the darkness. Half a moment, said the hobbit, shivering. I gave you a good long chance just now. It must make haste, 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 said Gollum, beginning to climb out of his boat onto the shore to get at Bilbo. But when he put out his long, webby foot in the water, a fish jumped out in a fright and fell on Bilbo's toes. Oh, he said. It's cold, Clary. And so he guessed. Fish, fish, he cried. It's a fish. Gollum was dreadfully disappointed. But Bilbo asked another riddle as quick as ever he could, so the Gollum had to get back into his boat and think. No legs lay on one leg. Two legs sat near on three legs. Four legs got some. It was not really the right time for this riddle, but Bilbo was in a hurry. Gollum might have had some trouble guessing it if he'd asked it another time. As it was, talking of fish, no legs were not so very difficult, and after that the rest was easy. Fish on a little table, man at table sitting on a stool, the cat has the bones. That, of course, is the answer, and Gollum soon gave it. Then he thought the time had come to ask something hard and horrible. This is what he said. This thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Poor Bilbo. He sat in the dark thinking of all the horrible names of all the giants and ogres he had ever heard told of in tales, but not one of them had done all these things. He had a feeling that the answer was quite different and that he ought to know it, but he could not think of it. He began to get frightened, and that's bad for thinking. Gollum began to get out of his boat. He flapped into the water and paddled to the bank. Bilbo could see his eyes coming towards him. His tongue seemed to stick in his mouth. He wanted to shout out, Give me more time, give me time. But all that came out with a sudden squeal was, Time! Time! Bilbo was saved by pure luck. That, of course, was the answer. Gollum was disappointed once more. And now he was getting angry and also tired of the game. It had made him very hungry indeed. This time he did not go back to the boat. He sat down in the dark by Bilbo. That made the hobbit most dreadfully uncomfortable and scattered his wits. It's got to ask us a question, my precious. Yes, yes, yes. Just one more question to guess. Yes, yes, said Gollum. But Bilbo simply could not think of any question with that nasty, wet, cold thing sitting next to him and pawing him and poking him. He scratched himself. He pinched himself. Still, he could not think of anything. Ask us, ask us, said Gollum. Bilbo pinched himself and slapped himself. He gripped on his little sword. He even felt in his pocket with his other hand. There he found a ring he had picked up in the passage and forgotten about. What have I got in my pocket, he said aloud. He was talking to himself. The Gollum thought it was a riddle and he was frightfully upset. Not fair, not fair, is. It isn't fair, my precious. Is it? Not fair, is it? To ask us what it's got in his nasty little pockets, is? Bilbo, seeing what had happened and having nothing better to ask, stuck to his question. What have I got in my pocket, he said louder. His father. He must give us three guesses, is he, my precious? Three guesses, is? Very well, guess away, said Bilbo. And is, said Gollum. Wrong, said Bilbo. But luckily, just taking his hand out again. Yes, again. Said Gollum, more upset than ever. 
thought of all the things he kept in his own pockets. Fishbone, goblin's teeth, wet shells, a bit of bat wing, sharp stone to sharpen his fangs on. Another nasty thing. He tried to think what other people kept in their pockets. Knife, he said at last. Wrong, said Milburn, who had lost his some time ago. Last guess. Now Gollum was in a much worse state than when Bilbo had asked him the egg question. He hissed and spluttered and rocked himself backwards and forwards and slapped his feet on the floor and wriggled and squirmed, but still he did not dare to waste his last guess. Come on, said Bilbo, I'm waiting. He tried to sound bold and cheerful, but he did not feel at all sure how the game was going to end, whether Gollum guessed right or not. Time's up, he said. String or nothing, shrieked Gollum, which was not quite fair working in two guesses at once. Both wrong, cried Bilbo, very much relieved. He jumped at once to his feet, put his back to the nearest wall, and held out his little sword. He knew, of course, that the riddle game was sacred and of immense antiquity, and even wicked creatures were afraid to cheat when they played at it. But he felt he could not trust this slimy thing to keep any promise at a pinch. Any excuse would do for him to slide out of it. And after all, that last question had not been a genuine riddle according to the ancient laws. But at any rate, Gollum did not at once attack him. He could see the sword in Bilbo's hand. He sat still, shivering and whispering. At last, Bilbo could wait no longer. Well, he said, what about your promise? I want to go. You must show me the way. Did we say so, precious? Show the nasty little baggins the way out? Yes, yes. But what has it got in its pockets, is eh? Not string precious, but not nothing. Oh, no, Gollum. Never you mind, said Bilbo. A promise is a promise. Cross it is, impatient precious, is Gollum. But it must wait. Yes, it must. We can't go up the tunnel so hasty. We must go and get some things first, yes. Things to help us. Well, hurry up, said Bilbo. Relieved to think of Gollum going away. He thought he was just making an excuse and did not need to come back. What was Gollum talking about? What useful thing could he keep out on the dark lake? And thank you for that, Open Culture Media. Express. In emergencies, in national security situations, if you're going to deliver medicine, you're going to deliver some antidote, or you're going to deliver some equipment, the post office is the last hope of this country. about the future of the U.S. Postal Service is in a fight of its life. Such bad financial shape. And it's now facing default. The Postal Service is a cash cow. And there was a way to pull money out of the Postal Service to put into the federal budget. The Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act was signed into law by President George W. Bush in 2006. The Postal Service must prepay pension funds in 10 annual installments of over $5.5 billion. 
That was a way to make the books of the post office look like they were losing money. It's hustling the public. It's shameful. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. If you're not totally glued to your computer email 24-7, you may have noticed that the U.S. Postal Service mail delivery has been getting more and more chaotic and sporadic over the last few decades. Filmmaker Jay Gallione has come out with a documentary film that helps to unravel the labor battleground that is the U.S. Postal Service in a deeply personal film, The Great Postal Heist. I'm happy to be speaking with director Jay Gallione. Hi, Jay. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Jay, tell us about your film, The Great Postal Heist. Well, the film began as a journey to answer a question that I always had um, as a child, because my dad was a postal worker. There was a lot about the job that I knew that he really enjoyed and was fulfilled by. And that was the human interaction that he took away from it. But there was also a real dark side of it. And he was directly targeted a couple of times with job actions that were taken against him. My dad was active in the union. Well, your your film is about your dad. That's certainly the entree into the story. But it's really a labor versus management story, isn't it, writ large? It's the story of of several people who we followed who realized early on in their career that the environment that they were working in was so stressful as to be toxic. And this was my question as a kid, why? Why is that? Number one, and the real naive question was, why doesn't everybody just walk out? And um, the film actually tells the story of major strike that happened in 1970. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, the strike was in 1970, and leading up to the strike, the postal workers, they were paid poverty wages. And this was year after year, they would lobby Congress to raise their wages. And, you know, how many insults of Congress voting themselves pay raises of 20, 30, 40 percent and voting postal workers no pay raise or 2 percent or 3 percent postal workers had to be on welfare in order to pay their living expenses, which always rise. The postal workers won a lot because Uh there was a lot of solidarity. You know, it it ground everything to a halt and they showed how much power they had by standing together. It started in New York City. It spread like wildfire. And as much as President Nixon, who, you know, decried it and brought in troops to try and deliver the mail, it didn't quite work out for them. (laughs) Um, And the postal workers showed how um, integral they were. So they won what they wanted, which was uh, fair wage increases and Uh um, collective bargaining. It was a great victory across the country, especially in rural towns, wasn't it? You have one guy who says this was finally a good paying job in a place where, you know, is mainly minimum wage jobs. But as one guy says in the film, there's always a retaliation after we win a good contract. And what was the retaliation in this case? The postal strike led to a reorganization of what was a government department, the post office department, into a corporation type environment, but it's still very nebulous and very conflicted as to is the post office a private business or is the post office part of the government? Now, there were a lot of corporations at the time who saw the profit ability of the postal service and who had been lobbying to break it off and have it be run by these with a corporate mindset for the benefit of corporate privatizers. And, you know, they got their wish essentially because, you know, this was the negotiation. Yes, postal workers, we're going to raise your wages. You can have your unions, but we're going to make this a self-sustaining organization, not run on tax dollars that a corporate board of governors is going to control. Hmm. And that's pretty much been the structure, the governance structure of it to this day. And it's led to a gradual breaking apart of a federal entity into still a a federal service, but behind the scenes often operated by corporations who are, you know, sorting the mail, often delivering the mail, 
you know, the, the corporations are, are looking to have their work done at lower wages. But why would a so-called public service be concerned with making a profit? I, I, I understand that they got obsessed with that, but where was their motivation? There were powerful people in a position to profit off of a very lucrative operation. The Postal Service has been, you know, until recently, because of certain laws, making hundreds of millions up to billions of dollars a year. And so why allow that money to be um, allowed back into a government-run postal system? Why allow that to happen when we can create a system where we can Uh say, all right, we're going to enter into a contract with the Postal Service where we're going to take this bulk of mail here in this major city market, and we're going to process it. So the fox is running the hen house and and stealing the eggs and giving it to their friends. Essentially. And, and now you, you have a postmaster general who, came, I mean, shows the revolving door who came from one of these privatizers, one of these logistics companies that had postal contracts. Now he's the postal board of governors. Sure, his buddies are making a lot of money. And when he's no longer the postmaster general, he'll be um, back in that game. So in a sense, U.S. taxpayers through the Postal Service is really subsidizing Amazon and all the giants because they do the easy part of the delivery. And then the tough part, which costs the most money, they offload onto the post office. Essentially, yeah. I mean, I think the one... uh misconception that people have is that there are any tax dollars that go to the postal service anymore. Ah, but, okay. Yeah, there I mean and that was part of that postal reorganization act was that we are going to have an entity that runs on its own revenue. So, you know, we the people are not paying postal workers and so, uh-huh. you know, and and that's a, that's a huge misconception because the postal service as as another of the um, subjects in the film says is has been a, a cash cow despite all the stories of the past 10 years of them bleeding money, the Postal Service um, has been a big revenue generator. So then it really is it really is basically a private business that's trying to maximize profit, lower wages, and any really facade of this is a public service like firemen or policemen or sanitation men is really not true in the slightest. Right. But despite the fact that they don't accept tax dollars, they still have a mandate by the government written in the Constitution to facilitate the correspondence of the people, the business needs of the people, the literary educational needs of the people, and they have to deliver to every address every day. Well, with, with all that, it it's really understandable the the high, high levels of stress that must exist among the workers being pulled in so many directions. And we've all heard of the term going postal. How much do you attribute the postal incidents to labor versus management stress? I think that's, you know, the, the lion's share of the responsibility is on that labor management stress and why that's happened. You know, a lot of these things got written off as, um, well, the person who did that was just just crazy. It was just kind of a one-time thing. But but how often do these things have to play out before we see a pattern that has um, th- that needs a deeper looking into? The macro picture of this reorganization and corporatization mindset placed on the Postal Service creates a situation where you have people running the post office that are trying to squeeze as much out of the workers and the productivity as possible. So these incidents, these violent incidents, were just really the tip of the iceberg of a lot of stress, illness among the workforce, and one of the and suicide. Suicides aren't aren't tracked. It's all shocking. And the the other thing about the privatization, I, I was shocked. It's not just the mail itself, but the public was losing very distinguished buildings that contained public art, I guess, from the New Deal days that were sold to real estate developers. Yeah, this is another, you know, kind of dark part of the story that is is still going on. But essentially, because the Postal Service as a government entity and, and back in the day was operated with tax dollars, with public money, 
created a a program to build these beautiful buildings, these these strong, well, you know, beautiful craftsmanship, these beautiful buildings um, to be post offices. And over the years, this real estate becomes seen as another, you know, hey, this if this can make us money, why are we wasting this, you know, all this money on, you know, this public building in the center of town when we could buy that building and make it into, you know, a restoration hardware or some other retail outlet. And, and as, as you indicate, for a while, there was an exclusive contract for the uh, real estate to be sold and leased back. And, and the person who was the chair of that company, of the real estate company, was the husband of Diane Feinstein. I mean, it's the corruption is just mind boggling. It's, it's unbelievable. And it was well determined by the inspector general and and people who looked into it that these buildings were sold to these to real estate developers at bargain basement prices you know trump bought one it's the um the the great old post office in washington dc is a, is a trump hotel <laughs> you know i make a crack in the movie that you can go there and, and buy a 30 dollar cheeseburger <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. this is just a total degradation of the dignity and, and the sanctity of our commonwealth, what was ours, what was paid for by us. I do want to talk about what happened in 2006 with the Postal Accountability Act, because, you know, talk about adding insult to injury. I mean, (laughs) it's injury to injury. So tell us what, what George W. Bush in 2006 did. This was a period when the Postal Service was making record revenue. And George Bush had had a couple expensive wars to pay for. And there was, you know, a lot of people in government who have their hands out for, you know, just putting money back into the treasury. And we have this big cash cow right here. What can we do? And so there was a way that they devised to say that postal workers had to fully fund their pensions going forward. So every postal worker has to have a fully funded pension for the rest of their lives. This is a <laughs> obligation that no other business or government entity in the world has to it's adhere to. Crazy. And and so what what that meant was that we're going to pay five and a half billion dollars a year for 10 years. The Postal Service is going to give five and a half billion dollars a year to the Treasury for 10 years, starting in 2006. And even without the economic crash that happened one year after that bill, that would have been a completely onerous thing to put on the Postal Service. You have economist Richard Wolff talk about what's going on. And and here at WBAI, we know Richard Wolf very well, because in fact, he has his own show on, yes. on our station. And uh, he talks about the possibility of employee self-management of the post office. Is there anywhere that you know of where that kind of thing is happening or happened? Well, you know, I have, I, I know people that have talked about it happening in their stations and, and that there were, you know, pilot programs where that has happened in certain places um, in decades past. It just seemed to be, well, you want an efficient system. Let's let's allow a collectively run postal service where the workers who are connecting with the customers who are citizens of this country can together envision how the postal service can better best serve their locale. And that might be different in small town in Idaho than it will be in Chicago. And that's a good thing. This is is something that should be should be said out loud, even though it seems politically unrealistic. So yeah, there's a way forward. And I think Richard talks about it eloquently in the film. Well, this this dismantling of the post office, I mean, it's clear has been going on under both Republican and Democratic administrations. I mean, why didn't Obama do something? And what is Biden doing? You know, it's a good question. I remember Obama's first public mention of the Postal Service was a slight. The Democrats are another corporate party. Well, there are there are many struggles depicted in the film, including your, your dad's, who was harassed uh, unmercifully in the post office because he was a union steward. A lot of times the guys didn't win, at least not at first. But when there were successes, what do you attribute it to? You know, it's it's a lot of personal 
conviction because if you're fighting your employer and your employer is the postal service and they've done you wrong, they've stolen your pay by, you know, deleting your overtime, they've fired you unjustly based on charges that they just cooked up. If they've done these things, then it's going to take you a long time, a lot of documentation, a lot of mental energy to see it through. Um, but ultimately, if you have your day in court and the evidence is on your side, it, it's hard for them to argue and win these cases against you. It's great that your dad fought the good fight and that you've helped to document some of the struggles that the workers fought. Where can we see the film or how can we order it? It'll be released on January 25th. But if you go to thegreatpostalheist.com, we will constantly you know, be updating on where the next best place is to uh, find the film. Great, great. Well, thanks so much, Jay Gallion, director of The Great Postal Heist, a documentary about the struggles that postal workers have had to fight for over the decades. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. How much are you going to put up with before you finally say enough is enough? This is a corruption that's got to stop. And we have to stand up for what is right. We have to. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.